you know, today is Valentine's Day, and that is a day when people express their love for uh, their family and uh, people in their life. But of course, in the Bible, we discover that God has expressed his love for us. Romans 5.8, where it says God shows his love for, for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then the Bible says that because God first loved us, we love. Uh, we have the uh, capacity to love with sacrificial love uh, that we didn't have uh, before we came to the forgiveness of our sin and our, our eternal life. First uh, John uh, 4.19 talks about that, that uh, we love because God first loved us. And in 1 John 4, 7, John says, Love comes from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And love for God and love for others are bound together. And in the book of Proverbs, we have seen many times where uh, there are statements that are telling us, in effect, if you love God, uh, here's how you're going to show it in your walk with God and in your walk with others. And uh, so we're going to be continuing uh, tonight in this study. Uh, I would ask if you are able to stand in honor of God's word and follow along as I'll read chapter 16, verse 33 through 17, verse 4. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. The crucible is for silver. And the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. An evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. This is God's word. You may be seated. As we've seen in our various studies, these titles are not originally with me. They are adapted, adapted from a book called The Wisdom of Proverbs by Bob Beasley. And the first one that we come to tonight is that last verse of chapter 16, verse 33. And the title is, Worship God in His Sovereignty. And it's interesting coming to this in verse 33, because chapter 16, with verse 33, ends the way it began. Because the beginning of chapter 16, particularly in verses 1 through 9, had lots to say about God's sovereignty. So I thought it would be good, before getting to verse 33, if we look back and just kind of review these other verses talking about God's sovereignty, that we would worship uh, him in his sovereignty. So turn to the beginning of chapter 16 in verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man. And God gave man the ability to reason and to think things through, 
We're faced with decisions, what kind of work to do, where to go to school, who to marry, and on and on and on, all these decisions. Well, God gave man uh, the ability to think and to reason. That's one of the, the ways we are different from the animals that God created. But this first proverb in chapter 16 says, the, heart, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Now, when it talks about the answer of the tongue, it refers more than just to a mere reply uh, to something that is said, but it is talk, it's a word that refers to the correct and perfect response to the immediate situation. In other words, we have an expression, we talk about that hit the nail on the head. And that's kind of the idea in, in this verse. Man has his plans, but you know, God directs what, what, what we're going to do with that and what comes out of our mouth to, uh, to put those plans into action. And uh, what God then is directing hits the nail on the head. And so he says uh, that that answer of the tongue is from the Lord. While man plans what he thinks is best, only God, who knows all, can put the perfect answer in a person's mouth. Now, by perfect, I mean perfect in the sense that it's part of God's will, and it's working all things together for good, to, for God's glory and for our good. And I, and I think about my life, and you can think about your life uh, uh, through the years. Um, you know, I, I can remember um, the time I entered college and thinking about, well, you know, I'll get out of college, and what will I do? Well, I, I, at that time when I entered college, I, I was, I was going to be a missionary. And uh, I thought, you know, it would really be neat. Uh, right after graduating from college to get married and uh, become a missionary and do all these things. But, you know, those weren't quite the direction that God wound up planning for my life. But his way is what actually happened. I didn't even know Terry at the time that uh, I graduated from college. There's no way I could marry her for several years till we actually met and so on. But God, God was working all that out. I, I had my plans, but God directed in the answer. It's a wonderful, wonderful verse on, on the sovereignty of God. Then look down in verse 3. Commit your work to the Lord. And the word commit there means to roll our plans onto the Lord. How do we do that? Through prayer and complete dependence upon him. And so he says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans. And so again, we have our plans. Oh, I think I'll do this when I graduate. And I'll do this and this and this. But your plans will be established. In other words, God will lead you in the way that he has planned. Yes, he's made us to think through things and come up with our ideas, and that, that's where it starts. But then God moves those and directs those through his sovereignty into uh, his plan for us. 
Then look at verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose. Think about it. Every star, every flower, every animal, even the tiniest molecule, every nation, every person serves the purpose for which God made it. That is astounding to think about. And as a result, everything is under his control and under his direction. God never says, oops, you know. We, we, we do things and then we just, oh, oh, oops, I didn't mean it that way. But that's never true of God. Again, it's another wonderful verse on the, on the sovereignty of God, but it doesn't end there. It, it continues uh, in, in the next line. Even the wicked, so the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Even the wicked come under God's control to accomplish his purposes. A classic example in scripture are Joseph's brothers. They did a wicked thing in deciding because they were jealous that they wanted to get rid of their brother Joseph. And they sold them into slavery and on and on it went. And yet when, when it was all over, Joseph was able to say, because of the sovereignty of God, you meant what you did for evil, but God meant it for good. And so here's the case of wicked men acting wickedly, and yet God was even sovereign and directing in that. And, and, and it goes a step further uh, in this verse, even the wicked for the day of trouble. The day of trouble refers to judgment. And it's, it's one of the principles of Scripture that sometimes is hard for us to get our, 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 our thinking around it. But God, even with the wicked, in his judgment of them, is achieving his purpose. His justice is displayed and uh, so many other things. And then down to verse 9, the last verse of our review. The heart of man plans his way. I think of Jonah. You know, God told Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, preach against it. And God knew that if they repented, God would uh, then not bring judgment. And, and Jonah wanted to see Nineveh have judgment. So he didn't want to do that. And so he decided to get as far away from Nineveh as he could, goes to the coast, gets on a ship that's going to Tarshish. That's in the area of, of uh, Gibraltar and Spain and so on, as far away as he could go. And that was his plan. But you know what the verse says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And the Lord worked out his plan that Jonah would be stopped. And you read the book of Jonah, the amazing story of how God did that. And Jonah wound up going to Nineveh and preaching, and they repented, and they were spared. And uh, what an amazing uh, example of the sovereignty of God. So the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Okay, with that review... Let's come to our new verse tonight, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap. Now, 
by lot, he's referring to something that they had in those days. It would have been something like dice. You know, you have dice and it has different numbers on the different sides and you roll it and see what comes up. Well, lots were something like that. And uh, these lots would, as far as people were concerned, would provide an answer, yes or no. They're wondering, should I do this or that? And they cast the lots, and apparently they're, unlike dice, where there's more than two choices and come up with lots, apparently there was either, it was one or other, and it would either be yes or no. And it's just the throwing of the dice, and that comes up, and, and you took that to be what you should do. There are some examples of that in Scripture. When, um, when Jonah was... Uh, on his way to Nineveh, you remember the storm came up, the sailors were surprised, they were students of the weather, and this was unexpected, and they thought, and they're heathen, they're not Jewish, they're heathen, and they're thinking, oh, I wonder what God is angry with us and has brought this storm, and I wonder which among us is the one they're angry at, and so in order to, to find out, they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. That's one time when they're in Scripture. The other time in Scripture is when after the ascension of Christ and the disciples are waiting in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit, and they, they want to choose a successor to, to um, uh, Judas as the, his replacement as an apostle. And they had two choices. And they couldn't figure out which one to choose. And so they cast the lots, trusting that God would express his will through the casting of those lots. And so when it says uh, um, the lot is cast into the lap, just picture this person has this, this lot and he has his, his lap here, the robe on it, and it just falls there in his lap and it shows him whether it's yes or no. Now, we have no occurrence after choosing Matthias as the disciple. We have no occurrence in, in Scripture of ever again Christians casting lots. Um, they had the Holy Spirit so very soon after that. And then we have the revealed Word of God. And uh, so we do not cast lots today in order to know God's will. We don't need that. But what this verse is talking about, the lot doesn't come up by chance. This is no accident. This is directed by God. In other words, God is behind even the, the, the most minor of events and choices and things. And God is sovereign in directing, even down to the casting of lots. Uh, so it, it's a wonderful verse on the sovereignty of God. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. There is no such thing as luck, is what this is, verse is saying. There's no such thing as a random choice. God is, over, is in control over what may appear to be merely by chance, but he is in control. He's definitely not, as some people think, 
a disinterested observer in the events in our life. He is sovereign. He is directing uh, in our life. So notice the title of the proverb, Worship God in His Sovereignty. It's easy to worship God in His sovereignty when life is going smoothly for us. You know, we're getting good grades, or we get a, a raise at work, and, and uh, relationships are going good, and it's easy to, oh, God, thank you, thank you, thank you for your sovereignty. But it's a lot harder to thank God for his sovereignty when things are going hard. But Scripture tells us that is especially when we need to thank God for his sovereignty. And uh, Solomon is really, in Proverbs, giving us so many insights into how life really is. Now, you may have heard me in other times refer to a blog that I really like. Hardly a day, Monday through Saturday, goes that I don't look at the blog by Tim Challies. The reason I don't do it on Sunday, he doesn't write it on Sunday, but uh, Monday through Saturday. Uh, I, I love the writings of Tim Challies. He's uh, doctrinally sound and reformed theology and uh, thanks, thanks very well. But anyway, he writes good articles. But he also has, every day in his blog, he'll have a link to articles by other people that he thinks we might enjoy. And uh, a week ago Wednesday, um, he, he had one that's called... Uh, when God gives us a platform. And uh, I, I really appreciated that, when God gives us a platform. The idea is, if you're going through something hard, that is a platform that God has given you from which you can proclaim God's message to people. And maybe you wouldn't have had that opportunity, but now you have this platform that is provided if, if it's an illness or a financial problem or, or whatever. I, w I would commend challies.com. Go back and look at a week ago, uh, a week ago today, uh, that uh, I think it was a week ago today, uh, that, that article that is called When God Gives Us a Platform. But anyway, I want to read the conclusion that he wrote to that. We grieve our losses, of course, whether that's the loss of health, wealth, ability, or loved ones. We rightly weep and mourn, and we certainly don't wish for these times of darkness to come upon us. But because we are never outside the providence of God, we can have confidence that we are never outside the purpose of God. We can understand that God has a purpose in our pain, and we can know that even in our darkest moments and hardest days, we can praise and glorify his name. We can know that his providence has given us a platform, whether it is from the heights of joy or the depths of sorrow, whether it is before many people or few, and surely it is only right that we use it to tell of his goodness and grace. So true. And it's because God is sovereign, certainly over the little things and also what seem like such big things in our life, which are, are these, these trials. 
The second of our Proverbs tonight is in chapter 17, verse 1. Prefer peace to plenty. This is an interesting one, of course, as they all are, but uh, chapter 17, verse 1. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Now, when he talks about a dry morsel there, uh, he's talking about a leftover corner of bread. So you have this, this piece of bread, and it's been divided. This is a picture of, of a family that doesn't have a lot of money and a lot of food. And so it all has to share, be shared, and, and you know, go far. So here you have this bread. This person's taking this piece, and that. there's this corner piece left. And it's dry. And you don't have any fancy sauces to put on it. You don't have any great jam to put on it. It's just this dry piece or morsel of bread. And he says, you know, that is better with quiet. Now there, the word quiet, uh, the Hebrew word is not meaning the absence of sound, where there's just no sounds going on, you're just eating and all this silence. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the absence of quarreling and the absence of yelling and the absence of conflict. And uh, it's, it's an interesting statement that better is a dry morsel with quiet without all that, that arguing and so on. Tuesday night, for Steve's family, for Steve and Esther is date night. And Terry and I have dinner with, with our wonderful grandkids while Steve and Esther are gone. And that happened last night. And after dinner, it's Steve's practice to uh, read uh, scripture and they read through a passage. But last night, no one could tell me where you had left off. And so I, I read a couple of these verses from Proverbs. And, and this was... This was uh, one of them that I read, and, and, I, and I said, you know, this family is like that. that uh, we're not quarreling. We're not yelling at one another. We're not arguing at, at dinner. It's quiet in that sense. And it just so happened that Esther's parents were, were over there also, and Esther's dad uh, chirped up. But that doesn't mean there's no sound. If, you know, there's plenty of, of sound when when you have all of us together, but it's quiet in the sense that it's not turmoil. It's not anger. It's not uh, all arguing and these kind of things. So he says, better is a dry morsel with that kind of quiet than the opposite. The opposite is a house full of feasting with strife. Now, the literally the the word feasting there, the Hebrew word, is literally sacrifices. And some translations uh, translate that or something like that. Um, and, and these sacrifices probably refer to the peace offerings of the Old Testament. So turn to uh, Leviticus chapter 7. Leviticus chapter 7. I want to read something about the peace offerings that just really sheds great light on what he's talking about here. Leviticus chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Leviticus seven eleven, 
And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. If he offers it for thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. So that's the opposite of the dry morsels that were talked about. And then he goes on uh, in verse 13, um, with the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread and from it shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings and the flesh. So it's not just bread, but it's meat. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or a freewill offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice. And on the next day, uh, what remains of it shall be eaten but what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. Well, here's the point. So you have all this meat from the sacrifice and it's taken home and you have a feast and, and it's a, a, a wonderful, a wonderful time. But the Solomon is pointing out, but what happens if there is this house full of feasting. They've had this peace offering sacrifice. They have this wonderful bread with moist oil and they have the meat and so on, but they have it with strife. The opposite of the quiet of the first line. Now strife, the ver next verse might give the clue as to what the strife would be over. And that would be family inheritance, but we'll get to the next verse, Lord willing. But regardless of the subject of the strife, it is caused, the strife is caused by being dominated by selfishness rather than the fruit of the Lord, through the fruit of the Spirit. And I put in your notes the wonderful promise Jesus gave us of peace. John 16, 33, in the world, you're going to have trial. You're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world, and I've given you peace. This peace that is that quietness that is in the previous verse. And Colossians 3, 15 says, we are to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Now, how do we do that? How do we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts? Well, Isaiah 26.3 says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace. In Hebrew, that's shalom, shalom. And uh, shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. And when you repeat a word like that in Hebrew, it's saying to the perfection. So thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. So how do we... How do we let this peace of Christ rule in our hearts? We keep our minds stayed on the Lord. And then Philippians 4, 6, and 7, which are those wonderful verses about don't worry about anything and, and so on, but in everything, pray and thank the Lord. And it says, in the peace of God, 
will guard your heart and mind. So we bring everything to the Lord in prayer and don't worry, don't fret. And, and we uh, uh, keep our minds stayed on him in order that uh, we are letting the peace of Christ rule our hearts. Now I put in your notes a quotation from Charles Bridges. Charles Bridges wrote a wonderful commentary on Proverbs back in the 1800s, and he made a great application, an application to the idea of the meal, having either this, this dry meal, but, oh, you've got peace, or a feast, but you have strife. He wrote, would you like to really enjoy your material blessings, such as this meal you're going to have? Then welcome the Savior to them. Cherish his spirit. Look to his glory and their enjoyment. Whether we have little or much, it will be blessed with the token of his presence and the seal of his everlasting love. Oh, good, good thoughts about our meal, that our meal would experience this peace that comes from Christ. So then I wrote down uh, some, some ways to foster this peace at, at our meals. First of all, thank the Lord at the beginning of the meal. Uh, that is a habit that uh, many, many, most hopefully Christians have adopted. And it's part of the pattern of our Lord that before we dig in to eat, we thank the Lord and ask God's blessing. Now, that's a good starting point. Secondly, consciously seek that every part of the conversation, unless you're eating by yourself, there should be some conversation going on, and consciously seek that every part of that conversation would be pleasing to him, and then seek to share with others that you're eating with the blessings of the Lord in your life. And uh, what a way to, to encourage this eating with this kind of peace. Then we come to the third of our Proverbs in verse 2. Be a wise servant and a wise child. He says in verse 2, A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully. Now, first of all, he's addressing, uh, talking about a servant. And, and a, a, a middle-class to wealthy family in those days would typically, of course, have children, but they also had servants. And the servants, as great as they might be, had a lower status than the sons did. But he's talking here about the servant who deals wisely. Now, the Hebrew word describes one who is careful in difficult situations and has wisdom in how to solve the problem at hand and the ability to apply the situation uh, and, and produce results. So he has, he has biblical wisdom. And yet he's on the low rung of the totem pole. Uh, he's the servant. A servant who deals wisely will wind up, this is saying later on, you know, there will be some results here, will wind up, will rule over a son who's higher up on the totem pole who acts shamefully. 
Now, there are some other verses in Proverbs that talk about, uh, for instance, a son acting shamefully and exactly what it entails. For instance, Proverbs 19.26 acts shamefully such as through disrespect and violence. That would be acting shamelessly. Or Proverbs 28.7, or extravagant living, just spending money like it's going out of style and money that he doesn't have or, or it's going to run out. Or another one, Proverbs 29, verse 15, or thinking only of himself. Those are all examples from those other verses in Proverbs of what you would call a shameful son. Now, Solomon is the one who wrote this and spoke this to his son. His son is named Rehoboam. And it turns out, we read in the books of Kings, that this really happened in, in uh, Solomon's family. Um, Solomon had his son uh, Rehoboam, who when you read the story of Rehoboam, you really come to the conclusion he was a shameful son. At the same time, Solomon had a wise servant named, of all things, Jeroboam. And it's always been difficult when people start studying the Old Testament. Now, am I talking about Rehoboam or Jeroboam? Both names sound about the same. They're in the same period and so on. But the servant's name was Jeroboam. Now, Solomon noticed Jeroboam uh, was as he was working one day on Sol one of Solomon's building projects in the city of Jerusalem, and he noticed he was just such an excellent worker that he put Jeroboam in charge of all the heavy construction work that was going on. And Jeroboam rose to prominence. And do you know what eventually happened? Jeroboam wound up being the king over 10 of the 12 tribes. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, only two of the 12 tribes. This is exactly what happened in that case. So um, he says, and he will share the, and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. That is, the servant will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. This proverb was meant to shock a shameful son into action and faithfulness, changing from shamefulness. And um, I, I was thinking, well, how, how, how would the son do what he's supposed to do and the servant do what he's supposed to do? And I thought of the well-known passage in Ephesians chapter 6. You remember in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, it tells fathers about the, working with their children, but then it tells the children to obey and be respectful of, of their parents. But then uh, in, in verses uh, 5 to 8, it talks about the worker, the servant, that the servant is to work unto the Lord, doing his menial service to please the Lord. So there's a message for the son in this, and there's a message for the servant in this. 
And then we have our, our fourth one, and that is submit to God's furnace of purification. And that's in verse 3. And verse 3 reads, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold. Now, the, when he says the crucible is for silver, this is talking about precious metals. Um, you would mine silver, but when you mine silver, it uh, usually doesn't look very much like silver. It's got all kinds of impurities mixed with it. So you have to separate the impurities from the good metal. And you do that by applying heat to it. And when it's, when it's silver, uh, they use a, a crucible. And uh, then it'll talk about this uh, uh, a furnace. A furnace also, a, a pot of furnace is used for gold. When I was about 10 years old, <clears throat> my grandmother's brother, who at that time lived up in the Sierra Nevada mountains of California. That's where the 49ers gold rush was uh, that you read about in history. And still to this day, there's a lot of gold and silver up there. But anyway, I wasn't alive in the time of the 49ers, and Grandma's brother was not a 49er. But he was a modern day, that is 60 years ago, um, a... Um, a, a gold miner up there in the gold country. But anyway, it was the only time I ever met him. He came and visited our family. And he, my grandparents brought him to our house for dinner. And I remember sitting around the table and he reached into his pocket and he took out a gold nugget. And as a 10-year-old, I'm saying, wow. First of all, I'm impressed. We, we got a miner, a gold miner. This is gold. But it sure didn't look like gold because it hadn't been refined yet. And uh, so there has to be a purification process that uh, we'll go through. By the way, with that uncle, Uncle Will, Grandma had prayed for him for over 50 years that he would come to salvation. And on that trip down to Southern California and while visiting our family, he came to Christ. And it wasn't too long after that that he went to heaven. Just a side Side note. Well, so the gold and the silver have to be heated. And then the impurities rise to the top and they are skimmed off and thrown away. And you have the pure, uh, pure silver and the pure gold left. And so he is saying the crucible is silver and the furnace is for gold. And the Lord tests hearts. So this putting the metals through the fire is, is called testing it and um, testing it to see if it has any impurities and then also refining it to remove the impurities. Now, the application that Solomon makes is one that I, I'm sure since you've been a Christian for a while, you've heard many times, and that is that uh, the Lord tests us. He tests our hearts. He puts us through the fire. First of all, to see if there's impurities. You know, it's often not until we go through a rough time that all of a sudden we find words coming out of our mouth that are not pure and thoughts that are not pure and actions that are not pure. We find it easier to put on a facade and then until the harder times come. So 
that fire sees if there are any impurities, but then also the fire refines and removes the impurities. Turn over to a well-known passage. I'm sure you've seen it before. The book of James, chapter 1. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. James 1, verse 2. Counted all joy, my brothers. That's something to pay attention to. He says, here's something to be joyful about. Oh, we say, oh, yeah, yeah, when I'm having fun, when I'm getting more money. and No. When you meet trials of various kinds. When he says, when you meet trials, it's the idea of all of a sudden they're unplanned and there they are. You meet them unexpectedly. They come into your life. And it's various kinds of trials. Can be persecution, can be job loss, finances, health, all kinds of things that, that come into our life that that are a trial. So he says, count it all joy uh, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith, so here's this crucible, the fire, and our faith is under the fire, it it, uh, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's a quality throughout the New Testament that we read that God wants us to grow in. Steadfastness, faithfulness, hanging in there, pleasing the Lord. And so he says, produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect. That doesn't mean sinless but it means fully developed. It means uh, mature. Or if you're talking about fruit, mature fruit. You know, if you are growing fruit in the backyard and it starts as a blossom and then it gets in a greater stage and you begin to be anxious to eat it, but then comes that day when it's perfect, it's mature, it's ripe, it's ready to eat. And he pictures our life for the Lord as being like that. He wants to produce this maturity, uh, this ripeness in our life, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. No glaring deficiency. You know, let's say that um, a student graduates from elementary school, high school, whatever, but they're unable to read. That would be a glaring deficiency. What? You graduated and you don't know how to read. That's a glaring deficiency. And so God says, you know, he doesn't want there to be glaring deficiencies in our walk with the Lord and in our Christian life. And so one of the means of doing, of, of, of keeping it from being glaring deficiencies is this suffering. And, uh, you know, the believer, I think I put in your notes, the believer who wants to grow in spiritual maturity in Christ-likeness is not only willing for this process, which this passage tells us, you know, to welcome and be rejoicing, but did you realize uh, even, uh, Scripture wants us even to ask God for it. Uh, that's Psalm 26.2. Turn 
to the book of Psalms, Psalm 26.2. Psalm 26.2, a psalm of David. Prove me. That's one of those words that's referring to the purifying process of fire. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Try me is another one of those terms referring to that. Test my heart. That's another one. And my mind. David asked, was actually asking God to do this, knowing that the tool God uses is pressure, is trial, even asking for that. Now, a tremendous application of this principle in this proverb is to pray in our life regularly. Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. And we've looked at this several other times in our study of Proverbs because it's such an important prayer for us. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. There's that purification process again. And know my thoughts. And see if there be any gracious way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Do you ever pray that? I would encourage you to make note of that and to frequently pray that in your devotional time with the Lord. Well, I think we will end with that proverb tonight, but let's um, think about um, how we apply these Proverbs. First of all, we had verse 33, worship God in his sovereignty. God's power to control every detail in his creation is something that we can never fully comprehend. But by faith, we rest in his sovereignty. And we rest in his sovereignty today and we grow in that rest so that when hard things come into your life, you will continue strong. We probably all have known people who went through quite a lengthy portion in their life um, saying they know the Lord and, and uh, saying they're a Christian and so on, but they're really not giving much attention to uh, following the Lord and growing in the Lord. And then trials come. And it's just like they just wither up. It's, it's like this parable Jesus told about the man that built his house on the sand and the man who built his house on the rock. And you remember the person that built the house on the sand the storms came, there was no foundation, wiped that house away. But the house that had a foundation, the storm came and it lasted. And uh, this realizing the sovereignty of God, we need to rest in, in him, in his sovereignty. When things are going well and it will strengthen and it will gradually build that foundation that we won't collapse when the storm comes because we're built on the foundation. So commit to using your circumstances 
as a platform to tell of the goodness of God. Remember that, that uh, article by Tim Challies. Secondly, we are to prefer peace to plenty. Are you letting the peace of Christ rule your heart? Practice Isaiah 26.3. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, with prayer and thanksgiving, make your request be made known to God, and the peace of God will keep your heart in Christ Jesus. And then there was uh, the third one, be a wise servant and a wise child. If you are a child or a teenager, um, don't be thinking only of yourself, but realize that God has given you parents as part of of your obedience to the Lord, part of your obedience to the Lord is to be obedience and respect for your parents. And um, all of us are to seek to be a wise servant who is pleasing to God, including in our secular job, that we are really serving the Lord. And then the last parable, the last proverb we saw, submit to God's furnace of purification. Are you going through the furnace, going through a trial right now? Instead of complaining, remember to, as James said, count it all joy because you know God is using it. And so therefore, trust him. Huh. Each one of these, these lessons in these Proverbs is an important life lesson and God has given them to us, and, and as you've noticed, many of them are repeated, maybe not verbatim in Proverbs, but the principle is over and over again. God wants us to be aware of these and growing in these. But if you have never come to salvation in Christ, repented of your sin and trusted Christ, you can't do these on your own. You can't reform your life by, by doing these things. You need God's power. And you will only have that if you have come for salvation and trusted Christ as your Savior. Let's pray. Father, how we do thank you for these Proverbs. And Father, we pray that you would remind us of them in the days to come and that we would be consciously putting them into practice and growing in maturity in Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.